I'm Carl Helliger, and welcome to Book Chat. Today joining us is Dr. Neil Langto, the author of this wonderful comprehensive book, Negro League Baseball. Uh, welcome, Neil. Thank you. And also good news about Neil, he's also a King of Prussia resident and has lived in Kingswood apartment for nine years. Um, one thing very fascinating and interesting about this book, Neil, I was, I was talking um, this morning to some people and I said, you know, this book was covered uh, as the top book review for the New York Times Sunday book review and Washington Post uh, book review the same week. And that almost never happens unless it's something like the Bill Clinton uh, autobiography. And to my knowledge, I, I don't know for sure, but this might be the first time in history that this has ever happened to an academic press book. So congratulations Thank for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's an excellent book. Uh, so tell us, uh, Neil, why did you decide to write this book and what challenges did you confront researching it? Well, I've always been interested in, in history and baseball, but I didn't know a whole lot about uh, Negro League baseball. And I sort of got exposed to it about 10, 15 years ago. And as I got more deeply into the subject, I realized there wasn't a whole lot that had been done on the Negro Leagues. And that sort of compelled me to start doing some research, start exploring it, and get more deeply into the subject. Um, the problem with doing Negro League research is the sources are pretty thin. I mean, what you basically have to work with are the black newspapers. And the black newspapers only came out once a week. So basically to piece together a history, you have to read multiple versions of black newspapers in different cities. And that's basically what I use to write this book. Mostly the black newspapers and some of the correspondence and things like that that has survived. And uh, basically the, the mainstream white papers would not cover Negro baseball? They didn't cover them very much. In the Philadelphia area, for example, you might see maybe a box score of a local Negro League game, but they certainly didn't write about them in the columns or anything like that. So it was pretty scant. Mm -hmm. Now your book uh, covers just a very specific era of Negro League baseball, isn't that correct? Yeah, it covers the period from the Depression, in Depression, World War II, and into the early, we could say maybe the pre-civil rights era, late 40s, early 1950s. I did that because I'd written an earlier book about the Negro Leagues, which covered sort of the first half of the stories up to 1930. And I picked up the story here. But it's actually, I think these are the, some of the three most crucial times in African-American history and, and Negro League history, which is the Depression, which really did a number on mm -hmm. black institutions. World War II, which really transformed black institutions because of the economy really boomed during World War II and that helped the black population. And in the post-World War era, World War II era, when you started seeing integration being part of the national you know, landscape for the first time. Well, let's talk a little about the uh, Depression then and its impact on Negro League Baseball. Uh, first of all, how did the Depression affect Negro League Baseball? And then from there, how was the effect on Negro League Baseball compared to what the Depression did to white Major League Baseball? Well, I think people have a hard time to even envisioning just how bad the Depression was. I mean, when you think of the Depression, I think at its peak, 25% of America was out, out of work. So, I mean, it's, you had a, a national catastrophe. Now, when you take that and you link it to the black community, you have to realize it was probably about 10 times worse. The black community was traditionally the last to be hired and the first to be fired. So many African-Americans lost their jobs. I mean, you had unemployment rates of up to 50% in some black communities during the 1930s. So the Negro Leagues are trying to build on that. Very, very difficult for them to build on the backs of a, of a population which is so unemployed, so downtrodden. So it was extremely difficult to try to put this over in the 1930s. And the major leagues had their troubles too in the 30s, at least in the early 30s, as did the minor leagues, but they weren't relying on an exclusively impoverished community to build. So the Negro Leagues really had a couple of strikes against them. It's almost a miracle that they were able to hold on during the 30s. And during the 30s, were people, uh, African-Americans and whites respectively for their uh, baseball teams, were they 
turning the baseball at all just as a means to escape the oppressive economy in their lives? I, th I think they did. And I think they did anyway, because baseball was really the most popular sport at that time. I mean, not certainly isn't today. It's, it's certainly taken a fall of the last 30 years. But in the 1930s, baseball was the most important sport and was the most popular sport in the black community and the white community. So people turned to it in good times and bad times, I think, as you said, for solace during the Depression. Who was Gus Greenlee? Gus Greenlee is, is really a very important figure in Negro League history, someone I spoke a lot about in the book, in the first half of the book. He was from Pittsburgh, and he was an African-American entrepreneur who had made his money running the illegal numbers lottery, which was very popular in many communities and still operates today in certain parts of the country and in the cities. Um, Greenlee made a lot of money on this, and he channeled some of that money into legitimate enterprises, businesses in the, in the Pittsburgh community. And one of the things he channeled his money into was Pittsburgh Crawfords, a black baseball team. And Greenlee did a lot for the Crawfords. He built them a park, and he later pretty much single-handedly engineered the start of a new black professional league, the Negro National League, in 1933. And he was really the driving force in the 30s of putting the Negro Leagues in the East on some kind of stability, stable footing. Um, the sad thing about Greenlee is that he really never made much money. And when the leagues were actually starting to resuscitate in the 1940s, he'd already been kind of cast out, and he could never get back in. He was, he was on the out looking in although he had done so much for the leagues in the beginning. So he was a real pioneer. Yes, he was. And also, uh, wasn't there to the Homestead Grays, also from the Pittsburgh area at the same time? The yeah, there was an, interest, an interesting um, uh, competition there between the Grays and, and the Crawfords in Pittsburgh, both of them sort of slugging it out, seeing which team was going to be the most dominant one. And for a while, the Crawfords were, were winning that competition. But eventually, the Crawfords just couldn't make it in Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh itself was not as good a city as, say, Philadelphia, New York was, because the Grays ended up moving to D.C. for a lot of their games by the 1940s. So um, you really needed a large black community that would come out and support baseball on a regular basis, like New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. Those were the most important cities in the Negro Leagues. Uh, well, you mentioned a few, so how about tell us, you know, more specifically, or a few more, what cities had the most successful black teams, and why didn't Negro League baseball flourish in the South? Well, the problem with the South, the answer to that part of the question was that there was no interracial competition. So you could play a game, and two Negro League teams could play, say, in Birmingham. They could play a game in Birmingham, but they couldn't play white teams. See, a lot of times Negro League teams would play maybe two league games a week against other black teams, and they would fill out their schedule with games against white opponents. So you needed to have those white opponents, at least in the periphery of the cities, to earn some money. Um, in the South, you couldn't do that. So it was almost not that cost-effective to go to Birmingham for one game or go to, say, Nashville for one game. Now, there were Negro League teams in the South, in Birmingham and Nashville. Um, they usually lagged behind as far as economically from the, the teams in, in, the, in the North. I see. And then I assume that uh, whites in the South at the time would probably not go to Negro League games. If they did, they would probably sit in segregated, there was segregated seating in most of those parks. So there would be a... a um, an area for blacks, an area for whites. And I'm sure there were a few, but certainly not that many whites would attend Negro League games in the South. Right, and were there more than just the uh, two teams in the South that you had mentioned? Those are, the, were, those are the two big ones, Birmingham and Nashville, is ones at the top, coming to the top of my head. Those are the most important ones in the South. And did they um, stay until the Negro Leagues folded? To the yeah, they, they lasted. Those cities were able to hang on longer because of the segregation that persisted in the South into the 1950s and even into the early 1960s in some cases. But uh, let's talk a little bit about now the role of the sports writers who covered Negro League baseball. What, what was their importance? Well, basically, they provided the coverage for the leagues. I mean, most of the black newspapers would have one sports editor, and he was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He'd almost he'd cover every sport. He'd write a column each week. And he would pretty much be getting the word out about the Negro League teams each week in his respective city. 
Um, and that's where, you know, where I was able to piece together this whole story is by, you know, reading these columnists in different cities. I mean, in Pittsburgh, there was Wendell Smith, one of the great black sports writers. In Baltimore, there was Sam Lacey. Um, in New York, there was Dan Burley. And just reading their comments from week to week gives you a, a nice perspective on what the perceptions were of the league, what were some of the problems, um, and what were some of the successes of the league over the time. Fine. Uh, now let's... Uh Leave the depression, thankfully, and uh, let's talk about now what was happening to the lives of African Americans uh, during the World War II era, and what, what you know, what, what changes came about, and how that impacted segregated baseball. Well, World War II had a tremendous effect on on America, but also on the African Americans in particular. I mean, for one thing, the economy boomed tremendously. When you're in a war economy, the country needs everything, and basically, you had full employment during World War II. So everyone who needed a job could get a job. So the black community, blacks were getting jobs for the first time in many cases, and good jobs, jobs in the war factories and the war plants, which paid quite well. So the black community was transformed economically during World War II. What was also happening was an ideological shift during World War II, because one thing, of course, during World War II, we're fighting fascism. And black activists made this, this, this connection in saying, you know, we're fighting fascist, fascism abroad. We need to look at it in our own backyard. So during World War II, you had the issue of discrimination and segregation of African-Americans really being considered a lot more seriously than it had in the past, although not as much in the future, but, but getting it out there a lot more than, say, the 1930s or the 1920s. Now, as far as the Negro Leagues are concerned, the Negro Leagues would really reach their peak during the 1940s because of the prosperity of the black community. People were able to go to games much more frequently and, and had the discretionary income to use to, for amusements and entertainment like baseball. Okay, fine. Now you're telling us that uh, Negro League Baseball prospered during World War II, and yet white Major League Baseball didn't as much. How come? Well, white Major League Baseball lost a lot of their players during World War II. Um, some of the greats like Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Hank Greenberg, all of them either were drafted or enlisted during in the service. So the cream of the crop was really taken from Major Leagues during the war. Um, baseball didn't do that bad during the war. By 45, they were starting to draw again. But... Mm -hmm. Um, the, actually, the white population and white major league players were drafted at a, at a much higher rate than, than, than uh, black baseball was. The military had a cap on black enlistments and black draftees during the war, so there just weren't as many African Americans who were drafted in, in general during the war. That's an interesting point, that last point. Uh, your book concentrates on larger trends in the historical significance of Negro League baseball rather than the exploits of famous players. Of course, that being said, you, you do give a lot of attention to Satchel Paige because he had a tremendous influence on the uh, game itself. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, Satchel Paige was kind of the, the engine that drove Negro League Baseball in the 1940s. I mean, he was, he was marketed, he, he played for the Monarchs, and, but he was marketed in such a way from city to city that he would draw tremendous crowds. What he would do often, what the Monarchs would have him do, they'd have him pitch three innings for each promotion so they could maximize his earning potential. So he'd say, come to Philadelphia, and they would market, Satchel Page is coming to Philadelphia, he'll pitch at least three innings. So he'd come pitch three innings, he'd draw 20,000 fans. He'd do the same thing in New York two days later. So Page really contributed to the attendance boost during World War II. It wasn't solely on him, but certainly he was probably the biggest, uh, most promotable uh, figure in the Negro Leagues, even more than Josh Gibson, who was a great player in his own right, but was not as colorful as Satchel Page was. Now, Page 
played for the was he Kansas City Monarchs? Page played for a few teams. He was by the forties. He was with the Monarchs, who had, who had kind of tied him to a contract of some sort because he was mm -hmm. kind of wayward and had a tendency to jump from team to team. Yeah, he played for the Monarchs, and eventually he did play in the major leagues when the integration occurred. He went up to the majors. Very good. Uh, an, an intriguing comment in your in your book. You say. Um, that even as black baseball reached its financial peak, it remained bound to the whims of whites. Can you, what, what do you mean by that? Well, by the 1940s, a lot of the Negro League teams were using the parks that were owned by uh, white major leagues and white minor league teams. For example, again, using the Philadelphia area. Um, the Philadelphia Stars were playing many of their games at Scheib Park, later Connie Mack Stadium. In New York, Yankee Stadium was used very often by Negro League teams, in Washington Griffith Stadium, and so on. So the success of the Negro Leagues was very much tied with the use of these parks. They needed these parks because they could hold a lot of fans and they were convenient to the black community. If they didn't have those parks, they'd be back to playing in small venues or, or none at all. In some cases, there just weren't parks available. So even though they were doing so well financially, it was very much still dependent upon where they could get in those parks and they maintained a successful relationship with the owners of those parks in major leagues for minor league baseball. Interesting. Now, uh, here again in the 40s, you say that Negro League Baseball enjoyed a degree of success it didn't previously had. But when you still compare the conditions that black players endured compared to the playing conditions, the number of games, the good umpiring, and the salaries of the whites, it still uh, was not a very uh, attractive proposition. No, it was not. I mean, the, the Negro Leagues, even at their peak, never operated as smoothly as even a minor league, simply because they, the scheduling was simply was, was, was kind of erratic. Um, they traveled much more. You know, they, they, they seldom would stay in a city for more than one day. The umpiring, as you mentioned, was often very shaky. Um, the administration of the leagues were fairly weak. The statistics were not well done. So they never could match the structure and organization of even as a, the minor leagues. Now, the caliber of play, of course, was quite high, but the actual running of the leagues was not. And even the number of games you, you mentioned, I think you said the Negro League teams would play uh, about half of what the white teams would play? They would play about maybe 80 league games against mm -hmm. other black opponents and maybe another 80 or 90 or so against white opponents, white semi-pro teams in most cases. Okay. Uh, Coleman McCarthy, who's the, uh, uh, the gentleman who wrote the, the review of your book in the Washington Post, uh, says in the review that uh, he asked the question, does the black ball player have a future? Does he? And if so, why or why not? That's a question that's been posed to me mm -hmm. by a couple of people recently. <laughs> um, it's, it's a difficult question. A lot of people have, have talked about this in the last couple of years because the, the percentage of African-American players in the major leagues, I think, is is very, very low. I think it's only 10%. It's at lowest in a number of years. Um, the interest in baseball in the black community today is fairly low. It's certainly below football and basketball. Um, and the question that is, is coming up is whether in the future that's going to drop even further. Now, Major League Baseball is taking some steps. They just built a, an academy in the Los Angeles area um, to hopefully get interest in young African-American players in that region. And they're hopefully going to replicate that in other parts of the country. But I think it's, it remains to be seen whether it's going to continue to get worse or better. And I think Major League Baseball is going to have to take more aggressive steps to do something about it. Now we're getting to the point we've talked about the 30s and the early 40s. And now we're looking at the era where integration is going to start. Can you describe initially how accepting were white Major League Baseball players and owners of teams towards integration? Well, it's interesting when Jackie Robinson, they, when they announced the signing of him in October 45, there were some black players, some white players who 
specifically said, it's all right as long as he's not on my team. And I think that kind of sums up the reaction. I think most white players were not keen on it at all. And I think it took certainly a, a long time for some of them to be won over. As far as the owners, I think most owners were not interested in integration with the exception of Brian Tricky at the time and were afraid of it. They were afraid it was going to hurt the gate that uh, black players would bring black fans and black fans would scare away white fans and it was going to do all sorts of damage to the game. And again, that took a while for that to be, you know, that, that sort of mindset to be changed into the 1950s. Okay. Now, how about Negro League uh, team owners themselves? What was their uh, initial feelings towards integration? Well, they were caught in a very difficult position and, and a position that was really not uncommon for black entrepreneurs because a lot of black entrepreneurs were, were building businesses that were built on segregation. In other words, they, they, they provided a service that could not be provided because of, because of segregation. Um, and the Negro Leagues were another one of these kinds of institutions. And they realized that once integration came, their particular business was going to take a tremendous hit. So, I mean, they were going to feel it in the pocketbook. I mean, they realized that certainly the integration of Major League Baseball was a good thing for the black community, but it was going to hurt them in the pocketbook. So it was very difficult for them to come out and say, yes, we favor integration. And most of them really didn't have a whole lot to say on the subject. And they took a lot of criticism from the black community and the black press for not being more aggressive as far as speaking out in favor of integration when it was occurring. So most of these owners thought that in and of itself that Negro League Baseball could not withstand integration. In other words, they, they didn't feel particularly that their game was strong enough even with integration to last. No, I think mo most of them realized that it was not going to, it would be very, very difficult to function in an integrated environment. I mean, I think as early as the 1940s, there's a quote in my book from one of, from one of the owners who said something like, we, we probably couldn't, couldn't even operate for very long with integration. We'd, we'd all be out of business. And maybe that was a little bit drastic an, an assessment, but basically um, the Negro Leagues could not really compete with an integrated competitor in the late 1940s. And it, even though it wasn't really that integrated a, a, an organization because Major League Baseball and the minor leagues were very, very slow to integrate. They would sign one player here, a couple players there, but um, really for a long time, most of the best black players were still in the Negro Leagues. Since the late 1940s, most of them were still playing in the Negro Leagues. But the black community as a whole was much more intrigued and interested in the one or two, three, four, five black players who were appearing in the major leagues than they were in seeing segregated baseball, which seemed to represent the past to them and not the future. All right. Um, a number of players, including Satchel Page, Page African-American players, had reservations about the integration too. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I have, I have a quote in the book about Page in, in the early 40s when, when people were really starting to seriously discuss integration. And Page said something to the effect that, you know, well, how's it going to be when black players are abused on the field, are called all sorts of names, you know, how, how they expect us to take that. And Page actually in the 40s was more, he felt that the best idea would be to bring an all black team into the major leagues rather than put one player on a team. I think, I think maybe for his own sense of comfort, he would have been, he would have felt better about doing that himself. Now, eventually he, he shed his own inhibitions and went to the major leagues in 1948 with the Cleveland Indians at the age of 42 years old, which is quite remarkable in itself. Right. Now, you mentioned Branch Rickey. Uh, what were his contributions to uh, the integration of baseball? Well, Branch Rickey has to get credit for being the guy who was the most aggressive and far-sighted uh, and willing to take chances in, in to, to integrate. I mean, there were 15 other owners or, or uh, general managers in the major leagues at the time, and not one of them 
really had the gumption to do it. And Branch Rickey was a visionary. I mean, he had already transformed Major League Baseball with the invention of the farm system with the St. Louis Cardinals earlier in his career. And he saw that black players could make an enormous contribution to the game. And he also was very shrewd. He knew he could probably get them cheap. And he also knew it would give him a competitive advantage, which it did with the Dodgers. Um, and he got the jump on all the rest of the owners. Now, as far as the way he handled it, for the Negro Leagues, it was a disaster because when he signed Jackie Robinson in 1945, he didn't give the Kansas City Monarchs anything. And in, in, in one way, he was correct because the Kansas City Monarchs didn't have a contract for Jackie Robinson, which was, again, sort of indicative of the way sometimes the Negro Leagues did business. They were kind of shaky with contracts. And Ricky at the time also really blasted the Negro Leagues. He said they weren't organizations, they weren't well run. So he really, I don't think he really appreciated a lot of the struggles that the Negro Leagues had been through for 20 odd years and not trying to help them. Um, he in fact got three players, he got Robinson, Roy Campanella, and Don Newcomb, all for nothing. And in each case he said, well, there's no contract, they're not under, you know, they're under no legal obligation, and he didn't pay for them. And those three players became basically the cornerstone for the Brooklyn Dodgers' success in the late 1940s and 1950s. So Ricky, I think, I think he could have done a little bit more in, in I think, the way he handled integration. I mean, he did pay for a couple of players who were under contract. In, in Philadelphia, there was a pitcher named Roy Partlow. And the Philadelphia Stars had, in fact, signed to a contract. And Ricky gave them $1,000, which really wasn't a whole lot of money. Um, so Ricky, you know, Ricky was someone who was very shrewd with money. And he was able to get players cheap. And that's what made him so far ahead of the rest of the owners and the rest of Major League officials. Um, once baseball integration began, was the demise of the Negro Leagues inevitable? Yeah, I, I think it was inevitable. I don't think anyone envisioned how quickly it was going to happen. Um, and I think some of this goes back to what's happening in American life in the late 1940s, that integration is on the horizon. I mean, people are really seriously starting to think more about it. I mean, it's certainly still a very segregated American society, but much less so than the 30s and the 40s. I mean, just one of the biggest breakthroughs in the late 40s is the integration of the military. Mm -hmm. um, and that just shows you how it was becoming part of uh, the national dialogue. And I think African-Americans, as I mentioned before, could look forward to, they could see integration as something that was, that was, that was there, it was, it was in the future. And segregated institutions seem to be part of the past. I mean, there seemed to be no point for a segregated institution like the Negro Leagues once the integration of the major leagues had occurred. And that was true in other kinds of black institutions like the black hospitals. Right. Once you start seeing black doctors able to get some positions in, black in white hospitals, then the black community, particularly in the North, turned away from all black hospitals. They felt they were no longer needed. They didn't have as much value to them. So really, all black institutions were, were having some difficulties in the late 40s, early 50s, unless they were seen as contributing to this new trend in integration. And the Negro Leagues were kind of no longer on that page anymore in the late 40s. Okay, then just briefly summing up, what was the importance of Negro League baseball and what was its legacy? I think it was important as an economic force. I mean, you have to realize that in, in the 40s at its peak, it was probably in the top three black businesses in the country. Maybe the insurance companies might have been bigger. So they, they generate a lot of income for the black community and also ancillary income for, 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 for stores and, and, and hotels around the parks. Um, they also trained a tremendous number of talented players. When you think about how many players that the Negro League sent to the major leagues, and the greats like Willie Mays, who played for the Birmingham Black Barons, and Hank Aaron in 1952, and Ernie Banks, and Jackie Robinson. I mean, so many players came out of this environment that even the Negro Leagues were very flawed. 
they they really generated a tremendous amount of talent. And they gave the black community heroes to look up to during this period of segregation where there really weren't, you know, there was where so much of white culture was putting down African-Americans in the 30s and 40s. And the Negro Leagues were giving a, sort of a another view of black athletes, a positive view for the community to see. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your splendid book, Negro League Baseball which is far more than a history of the Negro, Negro Leagues. It's a, it's a fine social history of America during most of the 20th century. So Dr. Neil Langto, thank you for joining us today on Book Chat. Thank you. I'm Carl Hallecker, and we'll see you soon.